Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. 
And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke, but we have had a few interruptions through the Christmas season. And prior to that, I interrupted our study of the Gospel of Luke, or rather, I hope, enhanced our study of the Gospel of Luke, with a series on deliverance. That series has been widely heard and will continue to be, and I'm very grateful for that. There was one element to that series that I really left out, and so I want to address that this morning and next Lord's Day morning, and then we'll get back to our study of Luke. When you do Bible exposition the way I do, you get into a book, you stay a long time, and so issues arise that have to be addressed, and so sometimes we have to take a bit of a, a rabbit trail away from the main road in order to deal with an issue. And this is a very, very pertinent issue. It would seem that everybody in evangelical Christianity, everybody who is truly a Christian, would understand that the gospel is the heart of Christianity that the gospel is found only in the Scripture and that the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. I grew up understanding that. My theological education affirmed it. My years of studying the Bible has sealed that affirmation. The heart of the Christian faith is the gospel. The gospel is found in the New Testament. The foundations of the gospel are found in the Old Testament. And the gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth if people are to be saved. That's essentially the Christian mission. That's what the church has believed. That has compelled its life. That has been its mandate. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in my name and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He said it another way. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That has been the church's mandate. True Christians have always believed that. The true church has always taught that. We have believed and been compelled by the fact that if people don't hear the gospel, they can't be saved. And if they aren't saved, then they'll spend eternity in hell under the judgment of God. So it is absolutely critical that the world hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that they not only hear it, but that they understand it accurately, that they believe it, that they embrace it for themselves, because it is the only saving truth. Compelled by this clear biblical mandate, Christians through the centuries have taken the saving message to the ends of the earth. Generation after generation, they have been engaged in doing this. Preaching the gospel to every person on earth has been the goal of the church. I have told you many times that that's, only, that's the only reason we're still here. We're already saved and sealed for eternity. There is no reason to leave us here except for this responsibility of evangelism. Now, we believe, the Bible is very clear, that salvation comes through believing in Christ. Believing in Christ comes from hearing and understanding the gospel. Being able to hear and understand the gospel can only occur if somebody takes the message. And somebody can only take the message if they're sent with it. And that's what Romans 10 says. You're saved by believing in Christ, 
But you can't believe in Christ unless you hear about Christ. You can't hear about Christ unless somebody preaches, and somebody's not going to preach unless they're sent. And that is our mandate, and that has been the mission of the church since the church was born on Pentecost. And Jesus said, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Since the church was launched till today, uncounted millions of dollars in every currency on the map of the world, and millions of hours of effort and work, and millions of Christian people through the centuries have been spent and sacrificed to take the only message of salvation to the edges of the earth. Translation work, rigorous, difficult, challenging work of taking a language that isn't even written and develop, developing an alphabet and developing a way to write that language and then teaching the people to read their own language when they've never even seen it. And then giving them the Scriptures and the Gospel and leading them to Christ. Rigorous work that takes decades. And then printing materials in every language, preaching, teaching, evangelizing. That's what the church has been engaged in since its calling, since the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, an unrelenting effort to use every means available to reach people with the only message that can save them from eternal judgment, and that's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we are now at the start of the new millennium. This is the official start, the year 2001. And at the start of this new millennium, we have greater means to take the gospel to the ends of the world than we've ever had. Technology, uh, sophistication in the application of that technology to every imaginable medium of communication has given us greater power now than ever to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. And isn't it amazing that at this point in time, uh, the enemy of men's souls the enemy of God, the arch-rival of God, Satan himself, has cranked up his efforts to prevent this. He's done it in a couple of interesting ways. One is to make the church confused about what the gospel is. And over the last 15 years, this has been a battle that I've been engaged in with some others to try to make sure that Christian people understand what the gospel is. It doesn't do any good to have the technology. It doesn't do any good to have the opportunity. It doesn't do any good to have the financial means. It doesn't do any good to have the manpower to take the message to the ends of the earth if you don't know what the message is. And so it's certainly a, a very wise strategy on the part of the enemy of men's souls to confuse the church about the message. And so along with many others, I've been engaged in writing books to try to clarify for Christians, quote-unquote, what the gospel is, because the church has become confused about the gospel. They're not really sure whether Jesus is Lord or not, whether He needs to be Lord or not. It doesn't seem to be important to the church anymore that people understand the true biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. It doesn't seem to be important to some people that there's repentance of sin, that we preach repentance. In fact, some people think that's some kind of an intrusion into grace. 
There's a failure to understand the doctrine of substitution and imputation. That is the true understanding that our sins were imputed fully to a substitute who died in our place and that we contribute nothing to our salvation except faith in that substitute. And so here we are as an evangelical church confused about the message. And you hear, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, a pastor of a very large evangelical church make a statement like the Reformation was overrated as to its importance. Well, what the Reformation did was define the gospel. Not only do we not know what the gospel is largely, we're not even sure it's important to get it right. That's a tragic thing. Here we are on the brink of really the greatest potential to spread the gospel of the ends of the earth, and we're not sure what it is. And the church in the process has gotten shallower and shallower. There are a number of reasons why. One of them is because churches have proliferated everywhere, honestly, that are being pastored by men who are unskilled, untrained, and don't have the theological background to be able to define things biblically and with any depth. Another is that there's this concern not to offend anybody, make church fun and entertaining, and so we create some kind of synthetic gospel that doesn't have enough truth in it to save anybody. Now, all of that is bad enough, and we've tried to address that, but there's a new wave in the evangelical world that is at least as frightening, if not more frightening. And the new wave in the evangelical world is this. There are some people who are telling us it isn't necessary to even take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not necessary. People are being saved without it, without it. Now this view has some labels. Let me, just, let me just give you a little teaching here. This is a theology class for a few minutes. You can handle it, I know. If, if I can understand it, you can understand it. What is, the, what is the name for this, this idea that somebody can get saved, somebody can get into the kingdom of God, somebody can go to heaven without the gospel? This is this is one name, natural theology. That is that man naturally can ascend to a knowledge of God, can ascend to a relationship to God, can ascend by his reason and his innate desire to do what's right to complying with God's will. This is natural. That is to say, opposite of supernatural. Supernatural theology says that God has to come down and save man. Natural theology says man can climb up to God. That's he can approach God on the natural level. This is to say that man has the natural reasoning process and power to come to God to be saved without the Scripture. Advocates say mankind may discover the existence of God. He may discover the attributes of God. He may discover the nature of God by human reason apart from scriptural revelation. Man is capable of knowing God, knowing the truth about God, and knowing God's will without the Bible. His reason is sufficient. Now, obviously, to believe that, you could not have a reformed view of depravity. You would have to believe that man has not only innate reasoning power, but innate goodness to pursue that, to pursue righteousness. So people who advocate this have a flawed view of man's depravity. But what they advocate is that man can make it to heaven without the Bible. He can make it to heaven without the gospel. So what's all the missionary fuss about? 
You don't need repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said he had to preach in Acts 20. The lost do not need to hear the gospel. They don't need to have a Bible. We don't need all this translation work. We don't need all these people sacrificing their lives in uh, remote areas with small tribes of people to try to get them the Bible and the Word of God and the gospel that saves because they can be saved without it. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted from the L.A. Times, uh, December 9th, a quote from the Pope just to show you that the Catholic Church believes this. Pope John Paul II said this week that all who live a just life will be saved even if they do not believe in Jesus Christ and the Roman Catholic Church. Pope went on to say, quote, the gospel teaches us that those who live in accordance with the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, the pure of heart, those who bear lovingly the sufferings of life, will enter God's kingdom, end quote. The Pope is taking an inclusive view of salvation. Uh, the biblical teaching that salvation only comes in response to faith in Jesus Christ is rejected as unreasonable and cruel by people who believe this. The heathen are saved if they just live good lives, if they're just poor in spirit, if they are pure in heart, and if they pursue what is right. They live good lives and they're sincere. It doesn't really matter what they believe. That is why Catholic apologist Peter Kreeft, who wrote the book Ecumenical Jihad, can say that there are Buddhists and there are Hindus and there are Confucianists and there are Muslims and there are atheists and there are uh, Orthodox Jews uh, all in heaven because Christ is not the issue, the gospel is not the issue, the Bible is not the issue, sincerity and goodness is the issue. And this is the natural theology idea that man by his natural powers, his reasoning powers, and some innate goodness can ascend to the knowledge of God and the will of God and please God and earn salvation whether he ever sees the Bible or ever hears about Jesus Christ. The Pope simply affirming what Catholic theology has long believed. Now this is somehow motivated by some human conception of fairness. It's not fair somehow for somebody somewhere uh, not to be able to be saved when they don't have immediate access to the gospel. But it's not just a Catholic view. And I'm going to reiterate something I, I read to you a few weeks ago because I want it on this tape. There was a, an interview that was held between Robert Schuller and Dr. Billy Graham on the Hour of Power. I have the transcript of that conversation. The conversation went like this. Dr. Schuler said, tell me, what is the future of Christianity? Dr. Graham said, I think there's the body of Christ, which comes from all the Christian groups around the world or outside the Christian groups. I think everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And I don't think that we're going to see a great sweeping revival that will turn the whole world to Christ at any time. In other words, what he's saying is, uh, there are people in the body of Christ who never heard of Christ, uh, so we don't need to expect that they're all going to come to Christ. They're going to come another way. Further, he says, God's purpose for this age is to call out a people for His name, and that's what God is doing today. He's calling people out of the world for His name, whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light they have, and I think they're saved, and they're going to be with us in heaven. Dr. Schuler responded, What I hear you saying is that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into a human heart and soul and life even if they've been born in darkness and have never heard and never had exposure to the Bible. Is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? 
Dr. Graham, yes, it is, because I believe that. I've met people in various parts of the world in tribal situations. They've never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible, have uh, never heard of Jesus, but they've believed in their hearts that there is a God, and they've tried to live a life that was quite apart from the surrounding community in which they live. Dr. Schuler, this is fantastic. I'm so thrilled to hear you say that. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Dr. Graham, there is, there certainly is. This has certainly leaped from Aristotle to the Catholic Church into evangelical Protestantism. Now we have a kind of Protestant viewpoint that says Muslims and Hindus and whoever are going to be in the body of Christ, in the kingdom, in heaven, with salvation, whether they ever get a Bible or whether they ever hear the gospel or whether they ever know about Jesus Christ. The uh, Billy Graham organization affirmed this position is the same as the one articulated in an article in Decision Magazine, which Billy wrote in 1960, so this is not something new. Now, this introduces us to the sort of the evangelical side of this, and uh, there's a term that's being used today to describe it. It's called the wider mercy view, which is a little easier to handle than the natural theology view. The idea that man in his depraved condition can find God, find God's will, live a righteous life and please God, is uh, that's impossible to prove by Scripture. So rather than posture yourself as a natural theologian, you'd, you'd rather be a supernatural theologian. So you come up with another title, the wider mercy view, that there is this wider latitude, there's this inclusive view in which uh, the Lord is going to include everybody. And what it essentially says is that people can be saved in any religion. Uh, Clark Pinnock, uh, when I was a student in seminary, he wrote a book called Set Forth Your Case, which was a really a fine Christian apologetic, a Christian evidentialism book. And um, he was, uh, you know, a great champion for the Christian faith. He has since wandered far away uh, and apostatized from that uh, to the point where he now is probably the, the leading proponent of this wider mercy view. And I'll quote, he says this, When we approach the man of faith other than our own, somebody in another religion, it will be in a spirit of expectancy to find out how God has been speaking to him and what new understanding of the grace and love of God we may ourselves discover in this encounter. Our first task in approaching another people, another culture, another religion is to take off our shoes. The place we are approaching is holy. Else we find ourselves treading on men's dreams. More, we may forget that God was here before our arrival. Now that redefines missions pretty significantly. Instead of going into a tribe and saying these people are lost, these people are doomed in darkness, you walk in there and you say you're standing on holy ground because God has been there in the form of their paganism. He adds, does Pinnock, God has more going on by way of redemption than what happened in first century Palestine. End quote. I, I can't imagine a more disastrous belief than that. God has more going on by way of redemption than what happened in first century Palestine. What does that say? That says that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was just one thing in the midst of many, rather than the single greatest event in all redemptive history. That depreciates Christ, 
that depreciates his incarnation, his virgin birth, his incarnation, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his second coming, everything if Christ is just one among many. This is a regurgitation of an old Greek heresy that the Apostle John dealt with called the universal logos, where the Christ Spirit is floating around injecting Himself into every religion. It also attacks the Trinity because only biblical Christianity affirms that God is a Trinity. Even Mormons deny that. You say, I, I, this is confusing. Well, yes, I think I know what you're thinking. Not because I'm omniscient, but because you probably think like I do. And what you're thinking is, how can people believe this? How can they believe this when the Bible says salvation is in Christ alone, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Pretty clear. Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We know that. Jesus says in John 7, because you believe not in me, you'll die in your sins, and where I go, you'll never come. Believing in Jesus to anybody who reads the New Testament is the only way to be saved. There's no other Savior. There's only one mediator, says Paul and Timothy. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Only one mediator. How do they deal with this? Some of these people talk about Jesus every time they're on the television, every time they get up and speak. What are they talking about? What are they saying to say Jesus is the only Savior, Jesus is the only Savior, and then to say that Muslims and Buddhists and animists and who knows what all over the place are all going to be in the body of Christ and they're all going to be in the kingdom and all going to be in heaven? How does that work? And here is the answer to that. You can find it in the writings of people like Clark Pinnock and Sanders and others who, who write on this. Here's what they're saying. They're saying the work of Christ is the only basis of salvation. But it's not necessary to know that. In other words, whatever religion you're in, if you believe in God, however you imagine God to be, and if you try to do what's right and uh, try to do what's good and religious, you're going to be saved by Christ, even though you didn't know who He was. You didn't know that God was a trinity. You didn't know God had revealed Himself in Christ. You didn't know Christ lived, died, rose again. You don't know anything about that. But Christ is still going to be your Savior. He still will have paid the price for your sins. So that they would say, He is the only Savior but He has atoned for and paid the price for the sins of people who will never know about a Bible and will never know about Jesus Christ. They will still directly benefit from His work on the cross without ever knowing it. Mother Teresa was very true to her Catholic faith. I was, my family and I went to, to visit her when we were in Calcutta. We gave her a copy of the book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Um, and it was, a, it was an interesting occasion. She's a very a gracious woman, very strong, very gracious little four-foot lady. Um, and uh, the kids wanted to give her this book, and so they did. And uh, she said she'd read it. But Mother Teresa was very, very true to her Catholic faith. She's a very true Catholic. She understood Catholicism very well. Uh, in, in the front of a Bible, which she autographed, she wrote, May you enter into the heart of Jesus through the Virgin Mary and signed her name. So she, she believed that salvation is by virtue of Mary. And that's very true to the Catholic faith. Another thing that was true to the Catholic faith was we went into her home for the sick and dying in Calcutta. And on the walls were Hindu gods. Uh, pictures of the Hindu gods. You know, those multi-armed, bizarre gods and deities of the Hindus. On the walls of this Catholic facility. 
by the way, it, it, it was adjacent to, immediately adjacent to the, the most vile, deviant temple that I have ever seen in my life anywhere in the world, the temple in Calcutta, the Hindu temple, where blood sacrifices are made regularly, even as big as an ox. And there is worship there that I wouldn't even describe in a public setting. It's so deviant. But they're next to each other. And I, I, at the time, and I, I don't think I really understood everything that I now understand, I wondered how she could have pictures of Hindu gods inside her place, which were connected to this deviant place next door. I just assumed that this is political correctness, that if you're going to survive in the city of Calcutta, you've got to do deference to the people that rule the nation of India, and that's what you do. Later came to understand, however, that um, this was part of their system. Part of their system. And I'll tell you how it works. A writer by the name of Raymond Panikin has written a book called The Unknown Christ of Hinduism. Isn't that an interesting title? The Unknown Christ of Hinduism. This is what he says. Quote, The good and bona fide Hindu is saved by Christ and not by Hinduism. But it is through the sacraments of Hinduism through the message of morality and the good life, through the mysticism that comes down to him through Hinduism, that Christ saves the Hindu, end quote. Everybody's in. Good Hindus, good Buddhists, good anybody's. Good, you know, people that you see on the uh, Discovery Channel running around with spears and bones through their lip. Everybody's going to be in if they're good, um, you can understand what an unbelievable thing this is to have intruded into evangelicalism, right? You might be able to live with this if it was coming out of Union Seminary in New York or if it was coming out of some liberal denomination that had already advocated uh, homosexuality in its clergy or something like that. But to hear the kind of people who are saying this and the kind of people like I mentioned uh, some time back who endorsed Peter Kreeft's book and J.I. Packer who said, What if he is right? And in the book, this is the entire thesis that Peter Kreeft has in his book, Evangelical or um, Ecumenical Jihad. You ask, how could this get into evangelicalism? How could we succumb to this? How could we buy into this? How could pastors be saying, ah, oh, the Reformation doesn't really matter, and now maybe we really need to redefine missions altogether all over the world, but that's exactly what's happening. Well, all of that to say we have a major problem. And as you know, I not only speak to you, but the Lord has allowed me to speak to a lot of people beyond you since Grace to You is on nearly 2,000 times a day, heard by a lot of people in English and I think 500 times a day now in Spanish, uh, when we have something that we want to say to the, to the evangelical world, we usually get a platform to say it. So I, I, I just felt that I needed to address this. And you know, the way to address this is simply go to the Scriptures, right? I mean, it's not, I'm not going to give you my opinion. My opinion isn't worth anything. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? Do we have a biblical case for the, in, for the exclusivism? Do we have a biblical case for the fact that if you don't know the gospel and if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you aren't going to heaven? The answer to that is yes. And we have a biblical case for the fact that natural theology isn't going to get anybody anywhere. And we also have a biblical case that God's mercy is extremely narrow. And in fact, if you're looking for the word narrow, you're going to find it in Matthew 7. It is a, what kind of gate? Narrow gate. So this is a narrow mercy and a supernatural theology. 
And that's what I want to show you from Scripture. Now, where are we going to start? Well, we're going to start by a general reference. So just sit there. Don't get into your Bible right now. Just listen for a minute. This is a general reference to Genesis 3, but I don't want you to go there because you'll be looking for verses, and I'm not going to refer. I'm only going to do it in a general way. Genesis 3. You know what happened in Genesis 3, right? Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. Man is created in the image of God, and then God creates a partner, Eve. So you have Adam and Eve, and they're in a condition of perfection. They have perfect bodies, perfect minds. Therefore, they have perfect reason, okay? They live in a perfect environment that is not at all skewed, and they have a perfect relationship with the Creator. So this is perfection, okay? We're in the garden in a perfect environment. They had perfect minds, capable of perfect understanding, capable of perfect reason, capable of perfect conclusions. Still, Adam and Eve in the state of perfection could not on their own understand why they were created. They could understand that they were created and could understand that something more powerful than them created them and something with an immense mind, some, some being that loved beauty and loved order and loved design and had power and gave life and all of that. But they couldn't know why they were created. They couldn't know what they were to do, what they were not to do, how they were to do it, unless there was somebody who told them. They wouldn't know how to respond to their environment, how to function in the garden. So God said to them, you can eat everything. Otherwise, they wouldn't have known that. And He said, don't eat that. If you do, you'll die. And He said, this is your wife. Have babies. And He said, name those animals. That's why they were walking and talking with God in the garden, because God was giving them special revelation about how they were to relate to Him and how they were to relate to their world. Natural theologians should be shocked to discover that Adam couldn't know divine truth by his perfect reason. He couldn't by his own reason, his own perfect intellect, he couldn't have come to know that he was not to eat this and to eat this, that he was to name the animals, etc., etc., that he was to tend the garden. God had to tell him all of that. Robert Morey says, Adam was not created to be the origin of truth, justice, morals, meaning, and beauty. The Creator walked with man in the garden. These daily sessions were special revelation. And God told man why He created him and what he was to do in the garden. He revealed to man what he could and couldn't eat. In other words, God was the origin and source of truth, justice, morals, meaning, and beauty. And man's responsibility was to receive what God revealed. Man was not the origin but the receiver of truth. And it's true, Adam and Eve would have known something about God, but they wouldn't have known what God wanted from them if He hadn't told them. We wouldn't even understand man's pre-fall condition. We wouldn't understand his fallen condition if it wasn't for Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Do you know, you can study the religions of the world, the philosophers of the world, the theologians of the world. None of them ever comes up with the right understanding of man's creation and man's depravity. None of them. They don't ever. Because you can't get there from depraved reasoning. And remember this, that when Satan got in the garden, perfect man with a perfect mind, 
perfect understanding, perfect reasoning. In that condition, Satan comes in, and what does he want Adam and Eve to distrust? Their reason? He says to them, has God said? You can't trust God's Word. See, what Satan always wants us to do is to distrust special revelation and trust our reason. And Satan's leading Eve through this little scenario. Finally, he says, ah, you're not going to die. You can't believe God. God lies. God said that? You're going to die? Nah, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. He doesn't like that competition. Satan tempted man to trust his reason and reject revelation from the mouth of God. God gave them special revelation. Don't eat. Satan said, don't believe what God says. Trust your reason. That's essentially what natural theology says. It's just the lie of Satan in the garden over and over and over again. You can get there through your reason. Don't worry about the Bible. Don't worry about the gospel. You don't need that. You can get there by your own reason. But look, how could fallen man in a cursed world find God's truth by his perverted reason when perfect man in a perfect world couldn't find God with perfect reason? Adam couldn't know what God wanted if God didn't tell him, and nobody else can know what God wants if God doesn't tell him, and we're in worse shape than Adam and Eve. And Satan always does the same thing. He always wants to depreciate the special revelation. What a great strategy. Let's convince the church they don't even need to preach the gospel. Tell me where that came from. Heaven? Tell me where that heresy came from. Who has the most at stake to get us to stop preaching the gospel? Well, let, let's look at Romans 1. I have time for two quick passages. I have about eight, and we'll finish them next time. Now, just stay with me because this is very important, and I'm going to go through here rapidly. Romans 1, 18 to 23. This is one of those monumental passages in the Bible that's extremely definitive, has far-reaching implications. Yeah, I want you to see man. This is a, this is a view of man. This is, a, this is a biblical anthropology. And it says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We'll stop there. Familiar to many of us. Now, let me kind of lay this out. The Bible here is saying that, that there is evidence about God. Verse 19. What, what is known about God is evident within them, and that's through reason. Reason looks in verse 20 at the creation and says there must be a creator. Reason looks at the diversity and says he must have an immense mind. It looks at the design and says he's a God of order. It looks at the beauty and says he's a God of beauty and harmony and all of that. It looks at the vast variety and, and says he's a God of immense 
power and complexity. Yes, that's true. So, in fact, it's so true, it's so clear that eternal power and divine nature are visible through reason looking at creation that it's clearly seen, verse 20. It's clearly seen. You'd have to be a, you really do have to commit intellectual suicide to deny that there is, a, there is a cause for the effect of the universe, that there is a creator. So it's, it's just clearly seen. And so clearly seen, the end of verse 20, that people have no excuse. You have absolutely no excuse for being an evolutionist. None. Just, it's absolute idiocy. It's moronic. And he uses the term here for moron uh, translated fool or foolish. Anybody who sees anything that exists assumes somebody made it. And the universe certainly demands a creator. So he says... God has given man in him reason, and reason looks at creation and concludes certain things about the power and nature of the Creator, and he's without excuse. The problem is this. It doesn't lead him to God, amazingly. It doesn't lead him to God. It does not lead him to the true God. Why? Back to verse 18. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Man is so wicked, he is so depraved, he is so vile in his nature, he is so ungodly that his depravity negates the possibility of him coming all the way to God on his own natural powers. Rather, he suppresses the truth. He dishonors the Creator. Look at verse 21. Even though the knowledge of God is obvious around him as Creator, he doesn't know the specifics about God's will or salvation, but at least he can see there's a Creator. But he will not honor Him as a Creator. He will not be thankful to Him. This is what depraved man does. I mean, you have even Adam doing this, dishonoring God by disobeying God, turning from special revelation to follow his own human reason in an act of pride. But here... He says they do not honor God. They do not give thanks to God. They turn away from God. They suppress the truth. And so what they come up with is they become futile. That's empty in their speculations. They come up with stupid ideas that aren't true. Like evolution, which is a big lie. It's not true. Or any human philosophy. Or any false religion. They invent empty human ideas that are not reality. And their foolish heart goes dark. There's no light. They end up with nothing but garbled understanding. Verse 22, in their egotism, which is a major part of depravity, they profess to be wise, give themselves PhDs, and put on royal and religious robes and cone hats and march around as if they're some great religious wise men. They are fools. They are morons in the Greek. They are ridiculous. In fact, it doesn't stop there. Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and snakes and bugs that make gods out of other things. 
That's where they end up. Worshipping bugs, worshipping men, worshipping whatever. That's where they go. Natural man, that's how he goes. Oh, he, his reason says there must be a God. There must be a Creator. must be powerful. must be complex. But because they're so wicked, because they're so depraved, and I'll say more about that next week, they suppress that truth. Because of the love of sin, they suppress that truth. They can't help but suppress it. They don't have any path to God. They can't get out of their deadness. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They're not alive to God. They're not alive to reality. In that deadness, the truth is suppressed. Righteousness is suppressed. And in its place comes the fabrication of false religious systems and empty, stupid philosophies. And the end of all of that, what's the end of all of that? What's the end of human philosophy and human religion? You say, the grace of God? No. No. Verse 18, what does it say? For what? The wrath of God. That's the whole point here. What these verses are telling us is that natural man, with his natural theology, unaided by special revelation, winds up inexcusably under divine judgment. It's the wrath of God. It's not the grace of God. You can't go over to some tribe that's worshiping an alligator or something and say, oh, I'm on holy ground. God was here before I arrived. God was not there. God is not there. That is not truth. That is not reality. That is a refusal to honor the true and living God, the incorruptible God, and in His place to stick something else, to fabricate something else, some empty philosophy, some foolish religion, or some idol. So that's where natural man goes. Romans 1 is the diagnosis of natural man. He becomes religious, but his religion is a descent, not an ascent. It is not an ascent to God. It is a descent from the first recognition of God as creator of the universe down to a false God being created by their own imagination in the suppression of the truth and the love of their own wickedness. And what happens is they don't end up with the grace of God. They don't end up, quote-unquote, in the body of Christ by any stretch of the imagination. They end up under the wrath of God. The wrath of Almighty God is judgment. Judgment. One other passage I want to show you, 1 Corinthians 1, because it partners with this one. And just a brief look at this one. 1 Corinthians 1. What we saw in Romans 1 is that when man attains to his highest level of religious pride, he is a moron. He is a fool under wrath. doesn't matter whether his religion is unsophisticated animism or very sophisticated Western kind of religion or Eastern kind of religion, he ends up in the same place. He's a fool who thinks he's wise. But let's go beyond that. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing what? You see, these fools think that what we preach is foolish. They think that the cross is foolish. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And here comes another judgment. And this is a verse taken uh, from Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Both of those, destroy and set aside, speak of sort of a final judgment, execution. God says, go ahead, line up the wisest of the wise. Line up the cleverest of the clever and I'll cut them down. Again, 
what happens to people who achieve religious wisdom, who achieve a high level of rational understanding of quote-unquote God and things spiritual? What happens is God's going to cut them down. It's the same thing as the wrath of Romans 1.18. Here it's destruction and setting aside, making into nothing. And then verse 20 says, where's the wise man going to be? This is almost sarcasm. Then where is the scribe going to be, the one who spent his whole life fastidiously writing out religious things? Where is the debater of this age, the person who could stand up and debate his philosophy and his theology? God Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Take the wisest of the wise. Take the wisdom of the world. Take the elite religious leaders. Take the people at the top echelons of their religion. Whether you're talking about the Pope or whether you're talking about the leader of Hinduism or the Muslim world or whether you're talking about the the apostles in the Mormon church or whatever you're talking about. Take them all, all of those who have reached the epitome of man's devised schemes of religion, the wise, the scribes, the great writers and theologians, the debaters, the people who can argue their point and win the day, all those people, all of them, God is going to make fools. They're not going to get grace. Do you get the point? You're going to get cut down. And the reason is in verse 21. This is the key. For since in the wisdom of God, by God's wisdom, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God. Mark that down. Underline that. You can't get there from here. The world at its best, at its highest point of religious achievement and intellectual achievement, the world at its wisest level can't come to know God. That's what it says. Can't do it. And then the end of verse 21. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. What message? The gospel to save those who believe. The message goes back to the message of the cross in verse 18. The only way you're going to get saved is by believing the message of the cross. That's the only way. It was God's plan that the world through its wisdom couldn't come to know Him. I'll say it again. You can't get to God from here by your own wisdom, rationality, religiosity, philosophy. But God was pleased through the foolishness of the message, the message of the cross, Christ, His death, His resurrection, to save those who what? Who believe. And it's not believe in anything, but believe in that. And the gospel of the cross is not a product of human reason. It's a revelation. It's a revelation. Where do you go for the revelation of the cross? Right here. Isn't this what explains it? Oh, Satan loves to come into the the garden today and pull people over and say, "You you don't really think you should believe what special revelation from God says. Trust your own reason. Trust your own reason what these theologians are doing. They're just following Satan. Only the message of the cross can save. Anything else is moria, moronic. Jeremiah 8.9 says, The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? You reject the revealed word of God. You reject special revelation. You reject the word of of the Lord, and what kind of wisdom have you got? 
Well, James answers the question. James 3.15, the wisdom that doesn't come down from above is demonic. Pretty straight, isn't it? It's not just wrong. It's not just foolish. It's demonic. Listen, if it doesn't come down from above, it comes up from below. And that's why Paul, down in chapter 2, verse 2, well, verse 1, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom. I didn't come with human ideas, reason. Verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ. He said, that's all, I, that's all I wanted to say. Why? Because that's the only message that does what? That saves. That's the only message to preach because that's the only way of salvation. When I brought to you the testimony of God, when I, when I unfolded for you the mystery of God, what had been hidden and is now revealed, when I brought to you the Word of God, it was all about Jesus and Him crucified because it's only by believing that that God is well pleased to save. So now where are the wise men? Nowhere. Where are the scribes? Absolutely nowhere. And I'm reading a book called Mormon America. I'm probably halfway through four or five hundred page book. Boy, that's a... That's a complex operation. Billions of dollars. People coming and going in this complexity of things. Fools. Top to bottom. Oh, they've reached all kinds of heights. You know, Ezra Taft, Benson, people like that. Other senators that we're familiar with today. People in power positions. Been in presidential cabinets. And they have complex systems of organization in their religion as well as corporately. And it's a huge, big house of cards that God one day is going to blow down. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. Absolutely nothing. It's, just, it's going to be destroyed. They're going to feel nothing but the wrath. You can't get to God through your own system. If you reject Jesus Christ, you can't get there. And you're never going to get there until you hear the message. You see, that's why we've been doing this for all these years. That's why for 2,000 years people have been going to the ends of the earth with the message of Christ because this is what we know the Bible teaches. Natural man, left to himself, ends up under the wrath of God, ends up, as 1 Corinthians says, under destruction, who is nothing but a fool. And take the wisest of the wise, he says in verse 19, and take the cleverest of the clever, and I'll wipe them all out. It's, it's, doesn't get you there. So no person by natural reason, no person by religious intuition can come to know the truth of God. The only way you'll ever know the saving truth of God is by special revelation, and that's the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody who says people are saved by Hinduism or by any other religion, anybody who says people are in the body of Christ and are Christians and in the kingdom and going to heaven who do not believe in Jesus Christ is not telling you the truth. That's not what the Bible says. So, I'll finish this next week. Lord, we are again made aware, sadly, of what must break your heart because it breaks ours. How much more profoundly do you feel the pain of dishonor 
But, Lord, we just want to get the record straight and make sure that we have been faithful to discharge our responsibility. And you told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So we want to make sure we understand the gospel and that we keep going. And we don't let these lies and these deceptions and these heresies attack your glorious work. Protect your church. Protect your people. And keep faithful men who preach the truth in the places of influence. And may your people hear and understand the truth. Give them discernment so they can sort it out. Give them a love for your word so that they have the criteria by which to be discerning. And help us, Lord, to be faithful to share the gospel with everybody who comes across our path knowing there is no other way to heaven except through faith in the message of Jesus Christ and His cross. And may we preach the cross like Paul, determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We ask these things in His name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember... By sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. This is Melissa Cantrella with Truth Be Told Radio and this is from an interview called Doctrine and Ministry with John MacArthur episode 67 from Jesus Three Ministries, uh, their YouTube page uh, channel, and this is John MacArthur talking about his influences and also how um, it 
it will discuss how like, he does his uh, his weekly uh, study and things like that. So here, check this out. And uh, but just to go one step beyond that, I would say the person apart from the Lord who has occupied the most of my mind is the Apostle Paul. And again, because he's such a featured person through the book of Acts and in 13 epistles that he has a dominant influence. And uh, I know so much about his life from all those years of study. And I find in him a model of life and ministry that I can at least approximate. Whereas Christ is the one I would like to become like. Paul is the one that uh, is more attainable because he had his weaknesses and his failures as well. So I think those guys have had an immense impact on me. There have been a few um, Puritan writers. Um, Thomas Watson was the first Puritan that I was kind of exposed to, but of, of more contemporary men, probably my interest was more directly uh, in Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, than any other sort of modern preacher. He died in the late 1900s. But there, there was so much parallel. And as soon as I discovered him, I realized that he thought the way I thought. And we had so much in common. I never expected it to happen, but his family, who ran the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust in England, eventually contacted me and said, we, we distribute all of his tapes, and we would like to ask if you would give us all of your tapes so we could have the doctor and you partnering in, in this ministry. And, and I realized at that point that they had come to the same conclusion as I had, that we had so much in common. So he had an immense influence on, on me. Another guy who had a great impact on my preaching was named S. Lewis Johnson. And you can Google that name, S. Lewis Johnson. You can find some of his great sermons. Just a, a, a Reformation man, if ever there was, a brilliant a gifted preacher, great expositor, and, and not as well known because he didn't write books. But there are some of his sermons around that uh, were greatly beneficial, and he helped me uh, learn how to to exposit the scripture and get focused on the message. Very good. Take us on a journey from from day to day, or just in a brief survey, if you would. Take us on a journey from your desk to the pulpit on the Lord's Day. So what does a typical week in preparation for preaching look like for you? Well, um, Monday is kind of a recovery day, typically for me, just um, coming down from and debriefing and dealing with whatever collateral things occurred on the Lord's Day. But really, by Tuesday, I'm, I'm geared up because they need a sermon title and a text. And that's not a challenge because I know when I'm going through a book what's coming. So before I can give them a title, I have to begin to, to connect the dots in the next text. And so I do that. So by Tuesday, I'm already thinking about that message. And then it's a question of, uh, for most of the years that I've done this, I've done two messages, one in the morning and one at night. So I had to have both kind of primed and ready to, to tackle by Tuesday or Wednesday at the latest. And and then I would just go into the study, and it would usually take me a day, day and a half per sermon. And then, obviously, the, the rest of the time is all the 
options that come your way as a shepherd and a pastor and the people you deal with and staff and ministry and radio and all the other stuff and writing books and all of that. But um, I always put that uh, as the low priority. The sermon was always the main priority, and I always felt like the best time that I had, the freshest time, was to be given to the sermon. So it was the, the morning time. Usually I'd be up and in my study and doing it my best to get my study done and craft the sermon as, as early in the week as I could. I, didn't, I, I never would do a sermon on Saturday because I didn't want to be ever in a situation where I had to make up my mind about a difficult interpretive issue um, with pressure from the clock. So by Friday, I would have everything kind of laid out and just use Saturday to kind of reprocess it and go over it in my mind and make sure I, I took care of the final details. Uh, Saturday was the day I, I didn't like to do anything. I, I didn't like the distractions because I was kind of honed in on that. But still, with kids and family and life, uh, there would be distractions. So I learned through the years to compartmentalize myself a little bit. But Sunday morning, up early by 6 o'clock and ready to uh, come down to the church uh, ahead of time to just make one more run through my notes and to do whatever I need to do in preparation for the service. But so many good quality people around here cover the details that there's not always a lot for me to do. And then I'm, by, by Saturday afternoon at some point, I'm... I'm pretty well loaded, locked and loaded, ready to go. Dr. MacArthur, thank you for sitting down for this conversation for the G3 podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Josh. God bless you. Thank you. Jonathan Rumi is a Catholic mystic famous for playing Jesus in the hit streaming show The Chosen and hippie Lonnie Frisbee in the film Jesus Revolution. Frisbee was a self-proclaimed prophet in the 60s and 70s during what was called the Jesus Movement in America. What the movie doesn't cover is that he was also a homosexual who died of AIDS. Listen to what Rumi said in an interview about how he prepared for the part. Before I started work, I went over to Christ Cathedral and uh, I sat by his grave and I prayed a rosary with him. The space just to his right is empty, so I got to sit down. Or lie. At one point, I even lied down because I just thought it was kind of interesting to try to connect in some way. And I said, Lonnie, I want to honor you with this film, and I really want to um, bring justice and, and, you know, the testament to the gifts of God's grace and powers that you displayed while you were on this earth. And so if this is a good idea that I do this film, have somebody give me a sign. Give me a sign, have God give me a sign. And the minute the words left my mouth, behind me there was a door open to the cathedral, and this giant chord rang out for about five seconds. So I heard that, and I was like, okay, thanks for that. <laughs> God's law says there shall not be found among you anyone who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. Galatians 5.20 and Revelation call this sorcery and say such persons will not inherit the kingdom of God. Isaiah 8.19 says, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not...
not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Their hearts are full of darkness and not the light of Christ when we understand the text. Simply stated, there is no such thing as transgender. Mr. President, this is my 221st day of publicly transitioning. You're either XX or XY. That's it. Whether you're trans, you know, gender nonconforming, all of these expectations, the people's obsession with the, you know, the binary. God made man male and female. Do you miss being free? No, not at all. That is determined genetically. That is physiology. That is science. That is reality. A 13-year-old transgender child. This notion that you are something other than your biology is a cultural construct. As someone who was freshly transitioned at the time uh, into her, who is a 17-year-old girl. Intended as an assault on God. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. And have you ever noticed the world seems a little less crazy when you are on top of a mountain? I know for me, those those high country panoramas, I can't get up to the mountains too much anymore, but boy, I remember it, those high country vistas have a way of clearing my head, giving me a, a fresh perspective. A mountaintop helps you to see the, the big picture. And that's why I love when David says in Psalm 61, quote, I call as my heart grows faint. Oh, God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Oh, friend, God is the rock higher than you and I. And when our world presses in on us, we need to clear our heads, get a fresh perspective, and be reminded of the big picture. God is our rock. And rising to his level, well, we see things as he wants us to see them. And you need that. You, you really do. Because when you come down from the mountaintop, you will have a fresh vision of how to live through the dark valleys and the rugged terrain. So today, may you be able to take time off and head for the mountains. Maybe not in actuality, but in your heart and head. And climb the rock that is so much higher than you and me. And when you do, enjoy the vista. I had a mountain event today. Uh, I have been, uh, I did a biopsy um, last Monday, and I found out that it was in my right breast and then also my my lymph node on the right. And it is not cancer. I thought it might be, but it is this, uh, it's uh, actually a rare, Sickness, uh, illness, or actually, uh, uh, actually, it's not. It's a um, they call it. It's a. It's a. Uh, in. It's. I'm, I can't find the word. Sorry. Um. Well, but this is what's called granulomatous mastitis. It's G R A N U L O, M A T O U S, then M A S T I. T-I-S. It is uh, um, 
it's an infection. That's what it is. But it's a rare infection. And but I'm thankful to God that it's not cancer because it would have been really hard to do go through that because you have to do uh, radiation like five days a week and and for six weeks about. So thank you to God that I do not have to go through that. But they do want to get the uh, get the infection out and they want to uh, do surgery to do that. So please, other Christians out there, please pray for me. My my church is praying for me and thankful to, I am thankful to God for that. And what I'm going to do next for you, this is called the Jesus Kids Catechism Interlude. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's word. God's word. God's word. Is there more than one God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. From the grave. Jesus now. He is seated at his father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Start with the Bible. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Dinosaurs seem like a great mystery to many Christians. They wonder, how do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible? Well, the answer is you don't. Okay, what do I mean? Well, 
we don't take dinosaurs and try to squeeze them somewhere into the Bible. The Bible is the true account of history from the eyewitness creator. So we start with God's word and then use it to explain what we see in our world. Starting with the Bible, we know God created everything. Genesis chapter 1 tells us God created land animals on day 6 of the creation week. Dinosaurs are land animals. That means God created them along with humans on day 6. They aren't a big mystery. There's so much to learn when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Discover the truth about dinosaurs, the age of the earth, creation, evolution, and much more at AnswersRadio.com. I saw someone last night. I dealt a long time with them. Precious little girl. She recognized her weakness. She recognized her frailty. She recognized her sin. She recognized there were some things in her life she couldn't overcome right now. But here was her problem. She would see her sin, and because of the work of the devil and sometimes our own heart condemning us, she would put herself in the penalty box every time that she sinned. Well, you can't go to God right now. You can't just keep running back to him. I mean, you sinned yesterday and you repented and asked for forgiveness. Now you've done the same exact thing today. I mean, you run back to him. You're just a hypocrite. You don't appreciate God. You don't have a high view of God. What do you think? God just hands out pardon to everyone? And isn't that what we do? And isn't that what we think? We sin, a sin that we've already sinned and already repented of. And because of it, we think we need to put ourselves in a penalty box for a little while, at least a couple of days, and try to work our way back into favor before we come to God. Because if we, we think, actually, you mean if I go back every time I do this, just immediately, not only going back and asking for forgiveness, but expecting forgiveness, isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't that a low view of God? Isn't that treating God as a forgiveness machine? No, it's being biblical. It's what poverty of spirit is supposed to do to us. Hi. I'm a weak Christian, and I gave myself a time out. Welcome back to our wretched. Is that you, weak Christian? Are you the type of Christian who sins and then shrinks away from God, doesn't dare to read the Bible, and then puts yourself into a chair, you put yourself into the corner, you put yourself on a timeout so that you can punish yourself so then maybe after some time, some more punishment, then you can maybe approach God. That is wrong. This is risky, but this is right. This is our faith. And you and I must learn to apply this. I don't care which type of weak Christian you are. Every Christian fall into the trap of giving him or herself a time out. And you should not. Why? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone. Behold, you're new. You're different. And you say, but I don't act all that different or feel all that different. Frankly, it doesn't matter how you feel about your position with God. When you repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ, whether you felt it or not, whether you were tingly and buzzing or not, it doesn't matter. Because God has taken your sin debt, Colossians 2, and he has nailed it to a tree. 
One in particular, a tree in the shape of a cross that Jesus Christ hung on for which of your sins? Some of them, the not-so-bad ones. No, the really bad ones, the wicked ones. The all of your sins nailed to a tree, gone. That means, as a Christian, when you sin, you do not need to impose any sort of punishment on yourself because it has already been laid completely and totally on Jesus Christ. And if you are feeling guilty when you sin, your feeling is wrong. Don't misunderstand this. You should feel bad when you sin because you grieve your God. But do not feel guilty because you're not guilty. Think of it like this. You see a child playing in the mud, and what do you do to cleanse your child? You take him out of the mud, and then you clean him off. And if your child stays clean, well, you don't have to give him another bath. But if he runs back to the mud and gets all dirty again, back to the tub he goes. That's not Christianity. Christianity means basically one time you are taken to the tub forever cleansed, and you say, but what happens when I fall back into my sin? You're not dirty. You might go romping in the mud, but you are not dirty even while you're in the pigsty. You, if you are born again, never need to be cleansed again. You never need to be cleansed again. Now, that doesn't mean that when you sin, you do not say, sorry to God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, which is what we should do when we sin, he is gracious. He is just to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means theologically, Christian, when you sin, God doesn't see you as dirty. And now you got to do some stuff to get yourself clean back up before you can go back in his presence. Or even Wronger, if there is such a thing, you don't sin, get dirty all over again, and then he has to take you through the cleansing process one more time. It's not how it works. You were taken through the cleansing process one time. You are never, ever, ever seen as dirty. That is how powerful Jesus' redemptive work was and is. That is how good and kind God is. That is how God forever sees you if you are in Christ. May I ask you, do you agree with that? Then why aren't you seeing yourself the same way? And if your response is to go, wow, I kind of had a feeling I'm pretty good. You didn't hear me correctly. You're not good. You do sin. I am perpetually weak. All of that is true. But equally true, dare I say, even more true, is that you're not seen that way. You are seen as if you're Jesus himself. Do you understand that? You are seen as if you are Jesus himself. And that thought should have at least two, a ton more, but at least two effects. First of all, it should give you great assurance and great joy. It should cause you to perpetually think, Our God is amazing, and so is this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Second of all, it should cause you to desire to not get dirty anymore, (laughs) to not go into the pigsty anymore, 
when you recognize you've been perpetually cleansed, you don't want to go back to doing the dirty things. You don't want to do those things because look at what God has done for me. Look at how he has made me. He's promised I'll never be dirty again. Why do I want to go do those sinful things? You know, come to think of it, I actually don't. My, what big teeth you have. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing God's Word. Yesterday we learned dinosaurs were created on day six of Creation Week. So what did dinosaurs like T-Rex originally eat? Well, look at their teeth. They ate meat, right? But what do big sharp teeth actually tell us? Well, all sharp teeth tell us is that the creature had, well, sharp teeth. It doesn't necessarily mean it ate meat. Many creatures today, such as pandas or fruit bats, have scary looking teeth, but they only eat plants and fruit. According to Genesis chapter 1, originally every creature was vegetarian. And yes, that includes dinosaurs, which means T-Rex was a vegetarian before the fall. Discover the proper lens for viewing the world around us, God's Word, when you visit AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or read a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Saturday afternoon in July, 1967, 50 years ago this month, when I took that fateful dive that completely altered my life. Before the accident in which I broke my neck, bound to become a physical therapist, I wanted to work with people in wheelchairs. Never did I dream that I would end up in one for the rest of my life. Lying in ICU, I was so fearful of the future. The whole idea of sitting down for the rest of my life without use of my hands or my legs, it terrified me. It it overwhelmed me. What was God doing? What was his plan? If only he would explain the blueprint of my future, then I would be able to understand and so trust him. Maybe you felt this way. If so, we are not alone. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, being unsure of what lies ahead, says to the Lord, quote, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so that I may understand you more fully. In other words, Moses was asking God for the blueprint. Then he would be happy to leave God's people. But God's response, quote, I will personally go with you, Moses. Wow. We may think we cannot move forward without the blueprint. But as Oswald Chambers says, God does not tell you what he is going to do. He reveals to you who he is. God is the blueprint. Jesus is the way. When it came to accepting my quadriplegia, it began with trusting Jesus. I could almost hear God saying, Johnny, I will personally go with you into the future. Jesus is not only the way after 50 years of living in this wheelchair, he is still the plan. And that, friend, is all I need to know as I look toward the next decade or two. That was actually five years ago when she made that one. So she's been even longer. Uh, Check out Johnny and Friends at Johnny and Friends on YouTube and you could watch all her videos there. 
And now, answers in just. Dinosaurs on the Ark? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. Children's Bibles usually show Noah leading land animals into the ark. Few show Noah leading on a brontosaurus or a stegosaurus. Why? After all, Noah was told to take two of every kind of land animal, and that includes dinosaurs. So yes, dinosaurs were on the ark. So how'd they fit? Well, not all dinosaurs were huge. The average dinosaur was about the size of a bison. And even the largest dinosaurs began life small. Also, the ark was massive. It had plenty of room for all the animals and supplies, plus for Noah and his family. So yes, dinosaurs were on the ark. They were land animals. Find resources to help you grow in your faith at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged from God's Word when you go to AnswersRadio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. I'm Johnny Erickson Tata, and some time ago, my husband Ken and I, we were back in Maryland for the holidays, and we were watching old family movies. My cousin Eddie dimmed the lights, and he uh, flicked on his movie projector, and oh my goodness, I couldn't believe it. There it was. I I, I was a 15-year-old holding onto the reins of my horse on my feet. Again, it was so exciting to see me on my feet. You know, there was a time when... um, that sight would have made me wish that I could go back to the good old days, walking, running, horseback riding. But the past is the past. And now I do not hearken to the past. I delight in the future. And when I see home movies now, it gets me excited about what my new body might be in heaven. That's what Colossians chapter 3 is all about. Set your minds on things above, it says, not on earthly things. So, friend... Do not be dwelling on the past. Don't feel regrets that you cannot physically do what you once did. And if those memories of life on your feet still hurt, stop for a moment and let those feelings about the past catapult you into the future. Let the groaning not be for, quote, what once was, but for what will soon and very soon be. And I can't wait. Dinosaurs, why'd they disappear? This is Ken Ham, and we've launched a video streaming platform of Answers TV. What happened to the dinosaurs? Well, it wasn't an asteroid impact that wiped them out. You see, we know dinosaurs were on the ark with Noah because he was told to take two of every land animal kind with him, and that'd include dinosaurs. So what happened to them? Well, they likely died out for the same reasons creatures are going extinct today human activity, climate change, habitat loss, and more. The world after the global flood was a different place. Dinosaurs aren't a great mystery when you start with God's word. We find their fossils because they were buried during the flood. Those who survived died out later. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and read a transcript of this program or share it with others at AnswersRadio.com. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata, and welcome to my corner. 
You know, have you ever gone to the Lord in prayer only to find that your soul is in absolute not? <laughs> I mean, you want to have your prayer make sense, right? But when you start, you, you, you can't even put two sentences together. Fear or confusion sees you, and before you know it, discouragement scatters your words. You just feel like giving up. Well, anyone listening in would be signing as to what in the world you were praying about. But Romans chapter 8 says that, quote, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I love that verse. You and I may have trouble communicating to God. Well, sorry about that. My computer just went all to... Oh, my computer just went all weird and stopped <laughs> uh, with that loud noise. Thank you for sending tributary. I remind you check out our website at truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com. I am rebooting my computer and hopefully get back to the Uh, recordings. <laughs> Sorry about that. So today was a good day. Um, when Pastor was talking about what to do when things basically go wrong to, uh, or you're anxious, and he said, told us to uh, that there is. Uh, normal anxiety that just happens, but we aren't to be to be totally debilitated by that. We are to um, go to God and pray for it. And it's very practical. I like that um, he said that uh, that we give our cares to God, our anxiety to Him, and let Him uh, to help us. So let's see if I could get my uh, my thing back right now. Let's see. Mm, I am trying to open up the browser. Looks like the internet is not connected yet. And see, I want to remind you to, uh, you can also email us at truthbetoldradioshow.com, truthbetoldradioshow. And anything you write that's Give us permission to uh, uh, air on the show if you want to share things. And like some people, they have uh, shared with uh, me like books to review. I haven't done all of them yet, but 
still I am going to try to do that soon. And I have been learning uh, currently Photoshop, so that kind of keeps me busy. And I gotta get get um, some of my stuff in. I haven't finished yet. So let's see if what's okay. Let me try to get the internet connected right now. Let's see. Hold on. Uh, okay. Let's see. Connect to the internet. Oh, there it goes. And let's see. Available. Thank you for listening to Trippy Toll Radio. I'm trying to connect. Let's see. Come on. Internet. Get connected. Okay. Let's see. Let me think also. Um, our, um, we had a lesson on... Today also later about when you um to not to uh put God's name in vain and that's not just like using it as cuss words like misusing his name different ways. Let me see if I got it connected. Oh nope, not yet. Let me see if I can do this. Mm, go to settings. Um, see, connect the Wi-Fi. Show available network. Yeah, that's it. Let's get that connected. Okay. Let's see if it is. Okay. I think I got it. Okay, here we go. That's the bell. That's the wrong thing. Or a laptop. Which one do you think is worth more? Oh, well, definitely on. not the house. This is the one I was showing for. Brody and Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. And welcome to my corner. You know, have you ever gone to the Lord in prayer? Only to find that your soul is in absolute not. <laughs> I mean, you want to have your prayer make sense, right? But when you start, you, you, you can't even put two sentences together. Fear or confusion sees you, and before you know it, discouragement scatters your words. You just feel like giving up. Well, anyone listening in would be signing as to what in the world you were praying about. But Romans chapter 8 says that, quote, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I love that verse. You and I may have trouble communicating to God in prayer, but the one who searches our heart knows all about it. The Spirit is never limited by our weakness for words. He is an expert at reading our hearts. And so when our groans reach to heaven, we discover that we have a voice before God, and it's crystal clear. Do you have a prayer need? Well, I tell you what, we at Johnny and Friends would love to bring it before the Lord on your behalf, so send us your prayer request, would you, at johnnyandfriends.org. 
Recently, I listened to that old Beatles classic, Here Comes the Sun. Uh, it was a song I played a lot when I was first injured. But 30 seconds into it, I am sobbing, thinking of those dark days in the hospital when I thought I would never smile, I would never see the sunlight of hope. But now, more than 55 years later, I'm thinking, how did I ever make it? But here I am, living in joyful hope as though it were sunshine. How did it happen? Well, here's how. Day after day, month after month, year after year, I've been calling out to Jesus, clinging to his name, crying out constantly, oh, Lord, help me. Malachi 4 says that if we revere God's name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And so if you're struggling through dark times, call on Jesus, and you'll soon be seen. Here comes the sun. Fiction or legend? This is Ken Ham, author of the book on millions of years and church compromise in six days. Did you know legends of creatures we call dragons are found in places like China, England, Utah, Peru, North Africa and Australia? How could such diverse cultures all come up with the same type of stories? Well, the creatures described in these stories sound suspiciously like dinosaurs. Could these legends be the exaggerated memories of when people live with dinosaurs? Well, absolutely they could be. You see, dinosaurs didn't die out millions of years ago. Dinosaurs and humans lived together from the beginning. And the last dinosaurs went extinct sometime after Noah's flood. Humans have legends of dinosaur-like creatures because, well, people live with them. There's so much more to learn about the true history of life and the universe at AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again and find many other resources at AnswersRadio.com.
all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Join me Sunday next time. And go out with Yankee and friends and the VIBLE. Bye for now.